collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. morning, everyone. It's great to have you all for another episode of Collective Power. July, woo, already July. I'm still trying to figure out where March, April, May, and June went. July 3rd, uh, we're starting a new system this morning, the juvenile justice system. It's my honor to have with me uh, this morning, Suzanne, who's a mom. Unfortunately, all her children got involved in the juvenile justice system. But Suzanne is also a sister and a member of my spiritual community. Good morning. Good morning. It's great to see you. Great to be with you this morning. Thank you for saying yes to this. Thank you for the invitation, Rita. Yeah. So my first question is always, could you tell us a story about yourself that has the audience kind of get a feel for who you are in the world a little bit like I do? Okay. <laughs> and I know you, you said you were going to read something to warm up and I'm good. I'm good with that. Go for it. Yes. I promise this will be the only thing I read. All right. But go for it. Okay. As early as I can remember, I have cared deeply about equity. I remember as a young girl being aware of inequities and knowing I was in the group that had unearned privilege. I remember feeling guilt about the unfairness of it all. For a long time, I viewed power as bad, corrupt, and damaging, so I spent the larger part of my life stripping myself of any and all of what I perceived as power. Slowly, I became aware and began to understand what I had done and the impact of my choices on my life. I had made my life much harder and my challenges much greater. In college, I read a book entitled Women and the Holocaust, Different Voices, that talked about power and that the coercive form of power created an idealization of powerlessness among people of good conscience and goodwill. That if power is viewed as fundamentally coercive, then powerlessness becomes the only position of innocence. This resonated deeply with me. I knew this is what I had done. I also recognized that I had chosen this powerlessness, that many others had a humanly imposed sense of powerlessness. I clearly saw that I had chosen powerlessness as a way of life and that I was able to do this, to make a choice because of my position of power. I've spent most of my life in dis-ease, but for the last decade, I have been working hard to go against my habitual patterns and to create the life I dream of living. My story is filled with a lot of heartache, yet most days I remain hopeful 
and always I am grateful. I have a clear sense of my purpose, that my mission in this incarnation is to do what I can to learn and to teach self-love, to promote a just society, one where all people are treated with dignity and respect. My passion is social justice, police reform, ending mass incarceration, and creating healing instead of punitive and traumatizing systems. Thank you, Suzanne. That's really insightful, especially in the shift from powerlessness to power, right? Yes. And so when you said that you chose power while some other people didn't actually have that choice, were you referring to your whiteness? Because like, you're white and your kids are biracial, right? I'm just going to make that explicit. Yes. My whiteness and my socioeconomic status growing up. Mm -hmm. I've always known that that has given me a lot of unearned privilege. And then being married to a black man and we were together since we were teenagers. So, so we started off together in the early 80s. I just have a very clear, many experiences of how I am treated when I'm alone versus how I was treated when we were together, even just walking down the street. And now, you know, whether I'm alone or with my children. Yeah. What was it like to be a mixed couple in the 80s? I was thinking about that. One time I was talking with a therapist and saying how I was not brave and I, I couldn't do certain things because I didn't have any courage. And he pointed out to me, you know, you must have had courage if you were, <laughs> if you were dating a black man in the early 80s. We got a lot of hate thrown at us from many people, our families. We weren't allowed in each other's houses. You know, there was a lot of hate, even just like walking down the street, people would yell things out to us and police especially couldn't stand <laughs> the fact that we were together. So um, it was rich. Hmm. What do you mean, if you don't mind me asking, um, what did police couldn't stand seeing us together? Sounds like there's a story behind that. <laughs> I have so many stories I could just share, but, you know, we would be pulled over and just basically harassed. With everything that's been happening lately, I've been talking to my family and they've reminded me of stories. My mother actually told me a story of when my husband and I were living, we were living at 19th and Mount Vernon and my husband went out and uh, he didn't come home and he was gone for hours. And um, I didn't know what happened to him. When he finally came home, he told me that the police had stuck a gun to his head, taken him to the station and said that somebody ID'd him as somebody involved in a crime. And they, you know, spit at him, cursed at him, slapped mm. him around. And I was like, we're not having this. We're going down to the police station. We're making a report, which is what we did. I was 19 at the time, so I was clueless. And we marched down there. And then they actually re-arrested him because we made the report. And they were plainclothes cops, so he didn't even know when they put the gun at him that they were police officers. Anyway, we made a report, and they re-arrested him. 
and they took him down to the roundhouse. I don't know if that's what it's still called. And my mother was reminding me that I had called my father in the middle of the night because I, I didn't know what to do. And then my sister reminded me of a time that we were stopped and I guess I called her and we were in Cheltenham Township and I think somebody hit us or something and it was a white man and he was like throwing beer cans out of his window but the the cops like pulled us out of the car and had my husband down on the ground and I don't even remember these things. My family was just telling me stories and my nephews riding their bikes in our neighborhood and the police come like what are you doing in this neighborhood and my mom said they were like seven and eight years old just riding their bikes. And I think that with the police, especially it pissed them off because when I was younger, I was attractive. (laughs) So that pissed them off even more that I was with this black man. It sounds like your family learned through you. And like, given that everything's on the surface right now, it's like your family is like waking up in new ways and like all the dots are starting to connect, which is probably why they're remembering all these stories. Yes. Yes. It sounds like you open your eyes to that. They open their eyes through you and your relationship. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's taught us all a lot that I think that people that just stay in their one culture, ethnicity, race, whatever it is, they don't get to see certain things. And when you have diversity in your life, whatever kind of diversity that is, it gives you a richer, broader perspective. One of the reasons I invited you on the show, you have a really unique perspective in that, just like you said, you're a bridge in your family. Every time I've heard you talk about the juvenile justice system, you also have the inside of the bridge there. Right. Because you often being white yourself, you get to see both kind of how you're treated when your kids are present, when they're not present, when people know what your kids look like, when they don't know what your kids look like. I've heard several parts of that kind of over the years that we've known each other. What I'd love you to share now is like based in that experience, like what are the misperceptions that you think most people have about the juvenile justice system? So I think that there's two, whether you're working in it or you're outside of it. If you're working outside of it, the misperception is that it's helpful and that the kids get involved in it or the kids that get involved in it are bad and their parents are bad. And we're going to come in and we're going to do some things to punish you But more than punish you, we're going to help you. We're going to teach you, rehabilitate you, give you skills. That's what most people on the outside think. And they don't realize that it's a whole racket. (laughs) I think it was two years ago, I visited, all three of my kids were locked up at the same time in juvenile facility and adult. And I spend every weekend and Wednesday from Memorial Day to Labor Day, every Wednesday, every Saturday, every Sunday in some form of lockup visiting one of my children. And um, people don't know what that is. People don't know how they dehumanize, even at the, the, the youth center, 
just how they are handled and solitary and all that. So I think people on the outside just really have no idea of, of the way the system works and how people are railroaded into taking pleas and the charges that they get depend a lot on race, on gender, on socioeconomics. People think it's a just fair system. And then within the system, I would say the misperception is that, again, these are bad children, their parents are bad. And I think that because of how I look, I was given a lot more grace than most people because I can articulate and I can think and respond. And, and most times when I went to court, I meditated and prayed and wrote stuff down that I actually read out very thoughtful, articulate things. And I was not treated well, but I know I was treated much better than people who haven't had the luxury of maybe the education that I've had. But there's really no asking of what you need and what would be helpful. It is, you go into a room five minutes before you're ready to walk in and they're reviewing your case right then and there. You have no time to process or to talk and you're, it's humiliating. You're in a courtroom with everybody listening and just the judgment and the shame is it's crushing. And at the adult level, this is done out in the lobby or actually in the courtroom. So in the, in the juvenile, just injustice, you mostly are taken into a separate room, but in the adult system, it's happening right out there talking about everything, your charges, your most personal private things. And people are strangers are sitting all right next to you. And it's, it just strips you of dignity completely. And that's as the parent, I'm not even the person that I'm the parent with this shame. I can't imagine for my kids what that feels like. I know that through the defund police movement, that's like been really strong right now. You have some really like clear insights based on the police presence in schools. Yes. Because of the way a lot of your, I don't remember if all three of your kids or just one came to the attention of the juvenile justice system was by police officers being in, in school. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what your take is on how it looks now and how it could look? So all three of my children started getting arrested in school for really minor things I didn't realize at the time, my oldest son is 30. So he was coming up in school right at the time of the crime bill and zero tolerance and all these policies that really mirrored why we have mass incarceration now. And I, I didn't know that until a couple of years ago, like what was happening historically at that time. So I'll just share a few stories to highlight why I think the police in schools is so dangerous, especially for black and brown children because of the implicit bias, because of the lack of training, and because I believe that they have ultimate power. So it doesn't matter what anybody else says in the school system that might know, that might care, that might have child development experience and education. 
their decisions are overrided by the police, which is very dangerous. So my oldest son uh, was arrested. One of his arrests in school, he was charged with strong armed robbery, which he reminds me now is still on his record. And I remember getting the call and I was at work and I was standing at a copy machine. I, I remember exactly where I was. It was the end of the day. And they told me that my son was arrested for strong arm robbery. It was the school resource officer, which I have a hard time calling them resource officers because they're cops. They're not resources. At least for not most people, they're not resources. But I remember I almost fell out and I thought, oh my gosh, my son like got a gun or a knife and went into a 7-Eleven and robbed the 7-Eleven. What he had done was him and a buddy of his had heard that someone had weed, had brought weed to school. So they stopped the kid and were like intimidating him to give him the weed. They made him take his shoes off, checked his shoes, made him take his pack off and checked his backpack. That was all that happened. No one was hurt. No one was hit. No one was punched. The boy didn't even have the weed on him. There was no weed. And so my son was arrested and charged with strong arm robbery. I don't know if the other person he was with was given a charge. So that's just one example of like a ridiculous charge that was trumped up. That is not strong arm robbery. That has nothing to do um, with it. Had nothing to do with it. I can't cuss on air, but I have lots of words right now. Those are the only words (laughs) that come to my mind. And this is important because, you know, when you're given a lot of charges, then when you go into court, you always plea down, right? I don't know how exactly it works, but the more charges and the heavier you give them, even when you plea down, you're ultimately going to be left with some pretty significant things. And now my son, who has been going in and out of prison for 10 years, that racks up points and determines how you are categorized as an inmate. So he's been um, put in very violent areas of the prison. He didn't have the background or whatever it is that you need to deal with that. So um, when he was first went into an adult facility, he had turned 18 and two days later he was put into an adult facility and he had like a hundred and some thousand dollars worth of bail. He had never been in a fight in his life. And he was put into a dangerous pod where he ended up getting stabbed. He's been jumped. The system actually created someone much more wounded and aggressive now than before. And I know I'm supposed to be talking about juvenile justice, but all this started as a juvenile and it just stays with you and gets confounded and confounded in ways that I think only people within the system really get, whether they're working in it or walking through it. Most people just just can't even imagine how it, the breakdown of it and the, the confounding and cumulative pain. My second son's arrest began with pretty much they were all marijuana small amounts, like he smoked and took the bowl into school and it was the resin and the pipe and things like that. So they all started like that. All three of my children's are diagnosed with substance use disorder. So they have drug problems and have not really had quality treatment 
for that. Judges think you can punish addiction out of someone. Hmm. I think that's changing, but still the judge that dealt with my younger two kids, thank God she's, she didn't retire. I think she went back into the adult system, but I think strongly believed, you know, you can punish people out of addiction. You can punish people out of ADHD. You can punish people out of impulsivity, depression, anxiety, and trauma. And obviously you can't. Yeah. It's wild because everything in our mental health system says that doesn't work. Yes. So all of our research, all of research, best practices in the mental health system says that doesn't work. And yet you have a whole system that's still operating based on the assumption that it does. Yes, that's been one of my biggest frustrations is exactly what you said, that all the research, everything that we know about best practice says X, and we still continue to do Y. And I once heard that what shows up in research, there's like a 13 year lag between what research shows to when the implementation of it happens. And imagine how many lives are being destroyed in 13 years and beyond 13 years, because my oldest son is 30. My youngest son is 16 and the same shit is still happening. Yeah. In one of the conversations we've had in the past, you were saying though, how there's actually a split system. Because in some cases, you have seen youth get things like you had mentioned, like horse therapy, like which shocked, like really shocked me. I was like, what? It's horse therapy in this juvenile justice system. Where are these people? So tell me a little bit about that. Okay, so all three of my kids have also, they've all been placed by the state and they've also been privately placed by me. And there is such a clear difference in treatment that is heartbreaking because it shows more than race is money. If you have money, you can send your child to a place, child, not adult, because then it's completely out of your hands. But if you beg for your child, sometimes you will be allowed to privately place them, which means you know, it's very costly, but um, my older son, I was able to privately place in a therapeutic boarding school in New Mexico. The school district I sued, but school districts have deep pockets. I ran out of money. So I ended up having to bring my son home, but he was in a beautiful facility in the desert in New Mexico, which was really, really helping him. And They gave them a prom. They had therapy every day, quality therapists. It was in a beautiful setting. It was comfortable. My middle son went to Karen Foundation, which is a rehab. He went to the one in Pennsylvania where they have thick, nice towels and mattresses and a beautiful buffet and all sorts of wonderful therapies. Uh, He was also in a few state facilities where you have 30 second showers where someone is yelling at you, cold water. Um, You're wearing, you know, in all the youth facilities, you wear pretty much the same uniform that a adult person incarcerated wears. You have the same shampoos and 
the Bob Barker stuff that you get when you're in jail is what you get when you're in a youth facility. My third son, I sent him to a program in California where they had horse therapy. They had surfing therapy. It was in Newport Beach. They went to the beach. They had their support groups at the beach. It was in a beautiful house. They have a chef. They take them off all sugar, all medication. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful places that my kids have actually had real healing from. But Karen Foundation is $35,000 for 28 days. Rancho of Almora, where my older son, and that was back in the 90s, I guess, that I remortgaged my house. I think I spent, it was, at that time, it was like $6,000 a month. Um, where my younger son went was $100,000 for three months. Huge difference in terms of treatment and cost. And another thing is race. Because when you are in the private facility, it's pretty much white. And when you are in the state facility, it's pretty much all black and brown. So um, I acknowledge you for being willing to talk with us today. Like, I can't even imagine as a mom what it's like, right? <laughs> and I'm treading lightly in this interview because I know that from other conversations we've had, I know that it not only was it heartbreaking, but it's still heartbreaking, right? Yes, um, we're not out of this. <laughs> yeah. At all. <laughs> yeah, and the smile and the radiance that you walk in the world with is an honor to kind of who you are, not to... um the experience isn't any less heartbreaking because Thank of your you. smile or your radiant. And I know that. And so wanting to shift gears for a second, I know we could talk for hours about how things are screwed up. And, and I think all the details that you gave to me, like mean nothing in the face of, you know, you said feeling judgment and crushing shame like that just completely hit my heart. And to me, that's the core of everything else you said, right? Like that a person walks into a courtroom and that's the experience. When we're talking about children, we're talking about children and we're talking about supposedly rehabilitation. Like how is judgment and crushing shame going to create any types of like that's trauma, right? I want to add one piece about why I'm fascinated and I got like kind of into this place and then then we'll shift gears towards what can we do and what do you see could change and how can we activate and organize to change, right? But um, one last piece, and I'll let this be the bridge, is that, as you know, I've done a lot of work listening to the stories of mothers who lost their children to foster care. And what fascinates me is that, or I mean, and fascinates another word for outrageous, but like what really pisses me off is that the child welfare system is based on the assumption that we're protecting good kids from bad parents. Yes. Right? That's the whole system is based on that, right? Save, save the children, save the children from bad parents. Yeah. And I was re-listening yesterday to our episode, uh, I think it was six, but with Richard Wexler, where he was saying it, it was actually found the seed of the child welfare system was that um, they wanted to remove children from Catholics because they thought Catholics were savage 
and had Catholic immigrants were savage and had no business raising children. Like that was the origin of the child welfare system. In the juvenile justice system, there's this whole assumption, right, that we're protecting society from bad kids. Yes, yes. And oftentimes we're talking about the same kids. So you have these systems that have like built on these like house of cards, right? Like the systems themselves are solid, but they're built on like really fake assumptions. Yes. Right? That don't hold, don't hold in the face of the data, don't hold in the face of child research, don't hold in the face for sure of brain research and trauma research that we know now, the neurology of trauma, right? You will not scare someone out of addiction and you will not scare someone out of shame. But it's also these fictions that they're different kids. Yes. When actually we're talking about most of the time the same youth. Now there's a term crossover youth for youth who have been both in child welfare and in juvenile justice. And I think it's at least like 30 or 40%. That's like one in three kids. Right. Um, And I wouldn't be surprised if it's higher and that's actually just an underestimation because oftentimes the children who end up in foster care have like tremendous trauma and are predominantly black or disproportionately black and brown children. And so then they, they end up caught in the juvenile justice system as well. So I just wanted to highlight that because I think it's one of the fictions when we look at systems as if they're separate and we don't look at how they're connected. One of the things we do is make that assumption, you know, that those are the good kids and those are the bad kids. And we're talking about the same kids. To decide for anybody that someone is good or bad, it's there is this culture that there are throwaway people, whether it's throwaway adult or throwaway child. And it starts so young and just speaks to what you're saying. There's this us and them, good and bad. And if we can't see the potential and the humanness in every life how are we going to treat people well yes and that i think with talking about systems change is the core is is changing that mindset between the good and bad and who gets defined as good and who gets defined as bad and who gets defined needing help and who gets defined as needing punishment and that's deep deep seated It's not a surface change. Yeah. And so how do you think we can activate or use our collective power to shift in that direction? What are some solutions that you think we can work at? I think one thing that's been missing from the conversation is this idea of like the professionals or the experts knowing it all. And they get to, from the top down, decide what's best, what's needed, who's right, who's wrong, good or bad. And the voice of the people impacted, it's not validated at all. And I think if we allow those people to have a say in guiding what happens in guiding what's needed, we could make all of our systems more loving. I think changing systems across the board, as you said, because they all kind of intersect and work together so we can't just change the one because it's not going to work unless we kind of do it all 
and the home for good coalition.com. You can go to the website is a movement organization that is working to develop strategies to change systems across the board. And the one thing that I really, really value with Home for Good is I've never been part of an organization that, first of all, brought together such smart, caring, diverse group of people that want to work in changing the systems to be more loving and that allows everyone a voice. I mean, the space that's created, I just have never experienced that level of respect and dignity for every person's point of view and that their story matters and their life matters. So I think organizations like Home for Good really need to be like propelled forward, propped up so that we can do the deep, deep change and work to get a different result because all the other things that we've done, it's like we, this thing happens and then just react to it with some knee jerk thing, which doesn't really work. And then everybody goes to sleep again. And then another thing happens and this, and it's this pattern of like something, some crisis happens. And then we respond in a very shallow way and then rinse and repeat. I think coalitions like Home for Good I'm also part of Power, which is an interfaith organization that's working for equity and, you know, all matters of social justice, like just bringing together people that are saying, no, this is not okay. We're not doing it anymore. I think we need to build movements by bringing together people that care and are sick and tired and are not going to stand for it anymore. And those people need to be from all walks of life. The people that society says, we're not listening to you. You don't speak well enough. You're not educated well enough. Your kids have been in jail. You were an addict or whatever, or you are an addict, whatever it is, like bring us into the conversation. Yeah. So why don't you think people bring you into the conversation? Like, what are the assumptions there that we have to overcome? I think you have to talk a certain way. You have to look a certain way. And because otherwise you're not good enough. You're not good enough to enter the conversation. In my power group, I um, like Home for Good, it's filled with very caring, smart people that wanna do good work. Sometimes when I share my story, you know, I don't always feel very confident or competent and I shared that with them. And if you wanna hear the real stories, you, you have to allow space for people that they might curse, they might, talk in slang. You know, we have to welcome that and not judge it. And I think that all of us need to do our own soul searching to get to a place where I can see and honor the divinity in you, no matter what you look like, no matter what you sound like, I think comes from exposure, being around people that are different and learning to love them and see the divinity in them. I think that's the only way to do it. So you started out by telling us about like how your journey started with both assumptions around power. Like what have you discovered about power, about your personal power in this journey? <laughs> Not at the end of the journey, right? You're in the middle, right? Like what have you discovered by being in the middle? I am sad that I did so many things to take away my power. And I'm, I'm so thankful that I can see that 
my belief in power is bad is what made me do that. And that if what I discovered along the way is that being powerless, it ruined my life and it made me unable to affect any change at all, which is the last thing I want to do. I believe fully that I came here to do something and it's my destiny. And if I'm powerless, I can't do that. So I feel like I'm like clawing my way back, remembering who I am. But as I said, I chose powerlessness as a lifestyle. It's hard to change a lifestyle change. It's hard to change a habit. So I'm 52 <laughs> and I feel like I behave like I'm 16. <laughs> Not in a... Well, that's probably because you look 16. (laughs) (laughs) But my sense of power has been stunted. That's what I mean when I say I behave like I'm 16. And it actually is heartbreaking. It's very sad for me because I I really did make my life very hard. And my life is it's kind of hard now. So I struggle with power. I struggle to own it. And every day I think about what's the choice of power here? Even if it's something very small, just saying no, just saying no without having to explain myself and feel guilty. And, or if it's speaking up when I feel uncomfortable about something that someone said, and I'm, oh, here she goes again with this race stuff or With the police stuff, you know, I I know I annoy people. So I remind myself, like, be in your power because it's the only way to make a difference. But it is a a journey. And I feel like at 52, oh, my gosh, I should have gotten here already. (laughs) And then I remind myself, it's okay. Like, you're not going to get it done. You're not going to do it perfect. And all is as it should be. I don't know why, but... (laughs) I have to trust in that. As long as we're alive, there's still a journey, right? Yes. Like I I always say, if if we were there already on all fronts, we'd be dead. (laughs) Right. Then then we're done. There's nothing else to live for. Yes, we'd be in the vortex. That's right. (laughs) Suzanne, thank you for being with us this morning. I know you have to shift. And so thank you for uh, the time that you did give us. Uh, let us know if, if you have any last thoughts or if there's a way for folks to get in touch with you. I'll definitely add a link uh, to Power and the Home for Good Coalition on the show. If there's any other kind of resources you want to offer as well. I have a Facebook, but I'm not on Instagram and all that stuff. So I'm like old school with an email. <laughs> okay, that works. <laughs> Which you have my email, Rita. But I, if I can end with two things. Yep. One is an African proverb. A child who is not embraced by his village will burn it down to fill its warmth. That just touches me so deeply because I think that's what happens to so many of our children, right? And if you don't embrace me, I will burn our village down and we have to change that. And the last thing is a prayer from AA, which is the third step prayer. And it is this, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self 
that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. Namaste. Namaste, Suzanne. It was really wonderful having you. Thank you, Rita. I love you. Thank you for the opportunity. You're wonderful. You're so welcome. Come back anytime. I will. Love you. Love you back. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.